Pray with me, please. Father God, in particular today on this particular topic, we need your blessing. We pray that your presence would rest in this place in powerful, overflowing, abundant, transforming measure. This is our prayer, and we ask it in your name. Amen. I'd like you to ponder a question just in the quietness of your own cranium as we begin this morning, and the question is this. What will God's people be like at the very end of time? The Bible makes clear that we have been living in the time of the end uh, for quite some time now, I mean, at least by human perspectives. In the grand scope of human history, it's about a tiny, tiny portion here. But I'm speaking here of the very end, the time just prior, just immediately prior to the second coming of Jesus. Now, I, I choose this time because the Bible actually does give us some detail about what circumstances externally will be at that time. If you want to join me, take a look at Revelation chapter 13, beginning with verse 15. Revelation, the 13th chapter, beginning with verse 15. It's on page 1002 in your pew Bible, 1002. Revelation 13, beginning with verse 15. Let me just paint the picture here. In this particular portion of the book of Revelation, it is indeed describing the, the very end of time. There is this unholy trinity. There's the devil represented as a dragon. There's a beast that comes up out of the sea, this religious political power. There's a beast that comes up out of the land, another religious political power. All three of these are working together to desecrate God's temple uh, both in heaven and on earth, to lead the earth astray into false worship. And as part of that, the beast out of the earth makes an image of the beast out of the sea, and this is what happens. Verse 15, he was given power, this is the beast out of the earth, was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, the sea beast, so that it could speak and cause all that refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, we do not have time to go into the particulars this morning about what it all means, what I just read there, but suffice it to say, here's the Reader's Digest version. At the very end of time, in seeking to bring worship to himself, Satan works out this mark. And if you do not abide by this mark, if you do not worship the beast in his way, then you can't buy or sell. You can't buy gas, you can't buy groceries, you can't buy clothes, you can't pay the mortgage. None of these things that we take for granted now can be done. And if that doesn't work, then there comes this death decree. If you do not do what we say and worship in the way that we say, give your allegiance as we say you should, we will kill you. And so I ask again, what will God's people be like at the very end of time? Scared? Nervous? Fearful? Perhaps. But I think there is one word that will describe them quite well. In fact, I think there's one word that may just describe them best of all. That one word is passionate. Passionate. 
Do you know what this word means? It has it as, as its root here, the word passion. It comes from the Greek word pathos. There's, there's other uh, history to it. And essentially what it means is this. If you are passionate about something, you will not give up. For the sake of whatever that is, you will not quit. You are going to go through. You will keep moving. Nothing will stop you. If you are passionate about something, you are willing to suffer for it. And some people have said, well, I'm passionate about exercise. If you're not sore the next day, you are not passionate about exercise. Okay, because if you're passionate about something, you're, you're, you, you give it your all in there, and there will be some suffering to go with that, either in the physical realm or in the spiritual realm. And notice this, passion is not always outwardly expressed all the time. You know, sometimes when we think of passion, we think of flailing arms and legs and spilling emotion, etc. And certainly that can be one expression of passion. But introverts can be passionate too. And sometimes it's not until certain conditions are met that you discover just how passionate someone is. Thus it will be, I believe, at the end of time with God's people. For just prior to the Mark of the Beast scenario, this group of God's people persistently, relentlessly, yes, passionately, stands for God, for His love, for His truth, for His word, and they will not budge, even though the world will tell them, if you don't budge, we will kill you. Such will be the state of those who passionately follow Jesus. And I'll tell you what, I want to be among that group of people. I want to be there. I don't relish the difficulties that will come with that stage, but make no mistake, I want to see Jesus come with my own two eyes prior to death, and I want to be part of that last group of people that will not flinch, that will not budge, that will follow Jesus Christ no matter what. And my guess is, most if not all of you want to be there too. So knowing that, Come back to the present. And let me ask you another question. Again, just for consumption and dealing with in the privateness of your own thoughts. What words describe your relationship with Jesus right now? You can probably see why I asked the question, huh? You know, if, if we want to be like God's people, we're told they will be at the end of time, standing firm for Him no matter what, right? Then we probably ought to start Now, so what words would describe your relationship with Jesus right now? Strong, vibrant, passionate, maybe. Growing, in need of some help. Flat, sick, dying, dead. Would you like the word passionate? To describe your relationship with Jesus? If so, let me tell you how. Jesus' disciples knew a thing or two about how passion was supposed to work. If we were to read in Acts, the book of Acts, say chapters 2 through chapters 5, we, we would find the disciples doing numerous things. We would find them, for instance, preaching to thousands of people at once. We would see them baptizing thousands, sometimes just in a single day. The disciples healed people, sometimes relatively privately, sometimes very publicly. We would see the disciples disputing boldly with the religious leaders of the day that stood opposed to them and to Jesus. The disciples, we would see them in that book generally being an uncompromising, unflinching, unstoppable band of witnesses relentlessly proclaiming and living out the kingdom of God. In fact, 
If all you read was Acts chapter 2 through 5, it would appear that the disciples are just being their normal, passionate, faithful selves. But anyone who has studied this part of the church's history know that that cannot be because that kind of passion for these guys is not normal at all. In fact, let me just show you what had happened here just a few weeks earlier. Let me read it here. Matthew chapter 26, verses 55 and 56. Uh, The scene here is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's at nighttime. Jesus' crucifixion is just hours away. They've come to arrest him. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And get this, then all the disciples deserted him and fled like rats from a sinking ship. The only thing these guys are passionate about at this point is saving their own skins, right? So so, so what happened here? I mean, what made the difference? How How do we go from deserting Jesus and seeking only your personal safety, how do you go from that to literally just weeks later being willing to die for Jesus, and happily so? If you have your Bible, take a look, please, at Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Acts chapter 1. Verse 4. It's on page 884 in your pew Bible. 884, Acts chapter 1, verse 4. What was it that made the difference in the disciples? Some people have said, well, it must have been the news that Jesus had risen from the grave. You know, the, the sheer information, the power of that story, that Jesus had died for the world's sins, he'd lain in the grave, but death could not hold him, he's been raised back to life. It must have been, many people say, this was the inspiration that transformed the disciples from, you know, from, from whiners into winners and from slackers into superheroes. That must have been it. No. The devil knows all that information and more, but when Jesus comes back, the devil will burn. There's something more at work here. Acts chapter 1, or excuse me, Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 4. The scene is this, Jesus has died, he's been laying in the grave, he's been resurrected, he's been walking for several weeks now, visiting various people, including his disciples. On one of those occasions, here's what happens, verse 4, on one occasion, while he, Jesus, was eating with them, the disciples, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait, what did he say? Wait, wait For the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the what? With the Holy Spirit. So, verse 6, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Still didn't quite get it, what was going on here. Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Behold, the holy hurricane 
had come. As incredibly important as information about the cross of Christ is, telling that story, etc., as incredibly important as information about the forgiveness of sins, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, as important as information is about the end of time, prophecy, the mark of the beast, final deceptions, etc., etc., as important as all of that is, it alone cannot change us from couch potatoes into passionate zealots that never give up. That can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that look like? How will the Holy Spirit bring this astonishing power into our lives and into the life of His church? Now, I want to be clear about something here. We, we are dealing with a mystery, ultimately. This is God, third member of the Godhead. And so we cannot pin down exactly all that there is to know about the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. Who needs to serve a God that you can completely understand? But we do get some hints. We do get some clarity from the Bible as to how it is that the Holy Spirit wishes to be in our lives. Let me put some things on the screen here for you. Uh, Luke, chapter 1, verse 15. For he, meaning John the Baptist, in fact, by the way, if you see something in yellow, would you say it nice and loud, okay, when we get to those yellow words, right, ready? For he, John the Baptist, will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. All of the disciples in the upper room were with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter with the Holy Spirit said to them, Acts chapter 4, verse 31. After the believers prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Acts chapter 6, verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 9, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord... Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be with the Holy Spirit. And finally here, Ephesians 5, verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. I hope the message is crystal clear. If repetition is the mother of learning, you should not forget this particular point. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Not half, not three quarters, not 99%. The Bible says we are to be filled with the Spirit of God. Nothing more, nothing less filled. This is God's will for us. If you are looking for a little bit of the Holy Spirit... You have come to the wrong God. God apparently has no interest in a little filling, a little tiny bit. He wants it to be full, which to me raises a very important question. Why? What is it that needs to be done inside of us or through us that is so important that only a brimming over relationship with God's Holy Spirit will do? Well, glad you asked. Let's do a little digging here. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 6. Jesus is speaking here. This is prior to his crucifixion and arrest. 
He says to his disciples that he is going to leave them and follows it up with this. Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. If I did not know the context of what Jesus has just said here, I would say this is the most ludicrous, ridiculous verse in the entire Bible. How could it possibly be true that it's better that Jesus Christ leave you? I mean, that's a, if, if Jesus Christ were preaching on this campus this morning, you wouldn't be sitting here right now and I wouldn't be speaking to you. We would all exit out the doors like a great fire drill and we would find where Jesus was and we would sit at his feet. Why? Because he's Jesus. And if Jesus were physically present, why would you want to be any other place? And yet Jesus himself says, oh, actually, it's better if I go. It's better if I leave. We ask, how come? Jesus answered, because unless I go away, the counselor of the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In other words, if Jesus had stayed on the planet, the only people that could be close to him were those that were in close physical proximity to him. Now, praise the Lord, good on them, right? But what about the other seven or eight billion people on the planet? And so Jesus does something better than being here physically. He says, I will send my Holy Spirit, and through my Holy Spirit, I can not only be with you, I can be in you. I can feel you. I can be closer to you than the air that you breathe, because the Holy Spirit lives within the mind. He, feel, he lives in our heart. And thus, we can be closer to Jesus in this way than if he were physically present on this planet. And not just me, not just you, every single person on the planet, whether they are physically close to Jesus or not, can be filled with his Holy Spirit. Now, this is an astonishing privilege on our part, but notice carefully, why does the Spirit wish to come in? What is the Spirit looking to do? Well, Jesus continues, John 16, verses 8 to 11. When He, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because people do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now, a whole bunch we could say about that, only going to say a little bit. One of the first things that the Holy Spirit does is that it convicts us of our sins. Whoever said amen, I just want to say thank you. Because in first service, not a single person said amen when I said that. It was, I mean, it was like a cemetery there. Not, not a soul said a word about that. Okay. So I'm going to give you one more chance. Uh, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins. Oh, you know, that was very good of you. I appreciate you playing ball with me on that one. I'm not sure if you mean it, though. I mean, imagine if a person were doing this. You know, a person were assigned to be the one to find and point out your sins, right? Oh, you did it again? Oh, that's the same thing you did yesterday. Why are you doing that again? What would we do with a person like that? Send them packing, right? They, they, they should not be. One of the first things Jesus says the Holy Spirit does is that he convicts us of our sin. Here's the thing. God is for us. The Holy Spirit is for us. The Holy Spirit is not here to bring harm to us. He is here to help save us. So if the Holy Spirit says that there is sin in my life or in your life, if the Holy Spirit convicts us of that, this is not a bad thing. This is a blessed gift. We, we don't, the, the surgeon that comes, if we're not feeling good, and the surgeon comes and, and tells us, oh, you know what, here's what the problem is. We don't slap the surgeon when he tells us. How dare you tell me that? Right. 
Because we want to hear, we want to get better, and this is a crucial step. The Holy Spirit tells us what is right and what is wrong. You know, people speak of the unaided conscience. There is no such thing. My Bible tells me that the heart of mankind is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? You cannot tell right from wrong without the blessing of the Holy Spirit somehow. This is why at the end of time, things go so swiftly. Because when you pull the Holy Spirit out of there, the mitigating factor that would tell even some people that have no trust in God whatsoever, what is right and wrong, that's gone. Well, unmixed evil has a very short half-life. Praise the Lord for the Holy Spirit's role in convicting us of our sins. But the Spirit doesn't stop there, praise the Lord. He not only points out our sins, but notice this also. A second thing he does is he takes Christ's death and resurrection power and applies it to our lives. He's not merely content to accuse, far from it. No, 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 no. In fact, if that's all he did was point out our sins, this would be terrible news but he follows it up with the application of Christ's death and resurrection power to our lives. Now, how do I know this? Take your Bible, please. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Exceedingly cool passage of Scripture we're going to look at right here. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Paul is going to talk here about what the Spirit does inside of us here. Romans chapter 8, this is page 918 in in your pew Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Here's what it says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Verse 2. Because, here's why. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Down to verse 5, please. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Verse 9. You, however are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is powerful, powerful, powerful stuff. The Holy Spirit, the most powerful force in the universe, consents to come and live inside of me, live inside of you. And he takes what Jesus did on the cross and he powers it, he empowers it to be effective in our lives. If you are stuck in sin, if you've got a habit you cannot break, if if there are things that are going wrong in your life and you cannot stop, this is what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished meaning the power of sin had been broken. The curtain in the temple was torn into. No more sacrifice necessary because the Lamb, capital T, capital L, had been sacrificed on the cross. All the power was available, but it was not yet applied to the human heart until the Holy Spirit makes it so. This is how we are saved. The Holy Spirit had to hover over the waters of the deep, the chaos, back before creation. That's how creation happened. Salvation is an act of creation. The Holy Spirit cannot remodel the sinner, so he gives him a new heart. 
a story. Many years ago in the last millennium, I was a student missionary on the island of Ponape. Uh, you can kind of tell which era people, student missionaries, were on Ponape because those, there are those that say Ponape and there are those that say Ponape. If you say Panape, you're just an English person who doesn't know what about it, okay? On Ponape, uh, I was a teacher there, and uh, uh, on one particular day, the principal came to us and said, uh, a hurricane is headed this way. Now, of course, in the South Pacific, uh, hurricanes are called typhoons, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, being American, I thought, well, typhoon, well, a hurt? okay, that I get. Now, I had never been in a hurricane before in the United States. I lived in California, and the ground kind of shakes there a bit. Uh, I've been in other places, you get snow and rain and that kind of stuff, maybe a few floods. But the idea of, of having a hurricane, a hurricane for, I'd, I'd never been in that. So we, we, we asked, well, well, what should we do? And they said, well, make everything on campus as secure as you can. Huh. All right, what does that mean? Do I tie the lawnmower down? What, do I find a palm tree? What, do I lash things? Together? What do I do? I, I really wasn't sure, and the other SMs weren't sure either. And then the principal had to leave. The principal had to go. There was some other part of the island he had to be on. I don't know, to help you know, prepare for the hurry. I have no idea what it was. But, but he left, leaving the student missionaries in charge. This was exciting. Now, again, not having ever been in something like this, like, oh, okay, what do we do? And so, you know, various ones of us are like, well, we probably should, you know, maybe close the windows. And someone said, no, you need to open the windows so you don't create high-pressure places in buildings and whatnot like this. All the cars we parked, you know, kind of safely out of the way, put them all together, huddled so that no tree would fall and this kind of a thing. And now the winds are starting to pick up. And those of you that have been in, in a hurricane before, you, you know that there, there, is a, there is a sound that comes with these things. I used to, before I was in one, people would tell me, well, it sounds like a freight train, but constant, you know, just kind of thing. And it does. It does. Apparently, it doesn't matter whether it's fir trees in Washington State or wherever, but palm trees sound, the city, it just got louder and louder, and the wind, the palm trees are starting to lean a little bit. There's no more birds. You can't see any wildlife. Things are starting to get rather serious, when I remembered that I had left something in my bedroom upstairs in the apartment where me and two other SMs lived. Now, to this day, I cannot recall what was so important that I thought I ought to go back outside and upstairs to the top floor of a building to retrieve something. We were student missionaries. We had no money. Uh, we, had, we had nothing of value, uh, but for some reason, I thought, oh, I forgot that. And my roommate said, oh, you know what? I forgot something too. And so, like ignorant Americans, we walked across campus. There'd be places, you know, things are flying sideways now, and people like this, you know, charging our way through across campus. We are men, after all. And we go upstairs here, we go up top, we go to the top floor, and we're getting our things here, we're looking around. And there comes this, this, this sound. It wasn't just the freight train. It, it was now, it almost sounded as, as though some giant were taking a large piece of sheet metal and ripping it in two. And we both looked up at the same time, and the roof was gone. <laughs> it was a giant ripping a large piece of metal in two, Right? And immediately, there's water coming in the top there. And I looked at my room and I said, I think we should leave now. 
He said, I think we should too. And phoom, we went down and across and find a place, at least someplace down low that was you know, covered with concrete on all sides there. It took off most of that part of the building. It took off most of the roofs of many of the other structures nearby. But on a place called Soquez, it decimated it. Because on Soquez, all they had were shanties especially. They were made of maybe some bamboo rigging and then uh, sheet metal. That's all they had. And when the wind finally stopped blowing, power was off on the islands, uh, water was hard to come by. It was, it was a mess. When we went out there on our, on our, on our, on our way, it, it looked just, I mean, decimated, completely destroyed. Some places were just bare, no wreckage left. That's what a hurricane can do. And some of you might be thinking, well, why, Pastor Shane, would you compare the work of the Holy Spirit to a hurricane? I compare the work of the Holy Spirit to a hurricane precisely because of its destructive power. Not destroying that which is good, but its power to destroy that which is bad. You see, in my heart, in your heart, can be strongholds of Satan, shanty towns built up over years. They may not seem to have much substance to them, but boy, they sure can last, can't they? Until finally we get to the place where we say, I need something better. There has to be freedom. God, set me free. Send your Holy Spirit to set me free. And then the holy hurricane comes blowing into your life. And when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of those bastions of Satan, he begins to rip the roof right off the top. He takes the doors out and chucks them away. He crashes through the windows with his fist. He breaks those walls down until many times, if we are willing, he will scrape that rock clean that there be nothing left behind to tempt us. Holy hurricane, praise the Lord. If you're listening to me right now and you know that you are caught, that there are chains on you that Satan has you wrapped in, that there are strongholds of Satan in your life, shanty towns, but boy, they sure have been stained. You need the holy hurricane. Ask him to come in. He longs to set you free. We're going to talk more about this later on. But suffice it to say, the Holy Spirit is in the business not merely of pointing out where our sin is, but of taking Christ's death and resurrection power and applying it to our lives and decimating the strongholds the devil has. Even with all this, the Holy Spirit is not finished. There is more. Very quickly here. John 14, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says this, All this I have spoken while still with you, but the counselor of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Hmm. Two more things the Holy Spirit does. Teaches us all things, reminds us of Christ's words. You know, if a student is uh, taking an exam and that they did not study for, they would love at that moment to have somebody teach them all things. 
They, they crave this knowledge. You know, help, help me to understand. If we do that for academic things, how much more do we crave it? Should we crave it for spiritual things? No spiritual lesson is to be lost in the kingdom of God if we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And reminding us of Christ's words. Now, notice it says, reminds us. You have to put the word of God into your mind first, and then the Holy Spirit can remind you when it is most needed. Many of you have had that experience at just the right time in just the right place. When you needed it most, there came to your mind a text from Scripture that exactly fit your circumstances. That's the Holy Spirit. Even with this, the Holy Spirit is not done. Uh, Jesus continued, John 16, verses 12 and 13. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. Two more things here, a fifth and a sixth that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth, and he tells us what is to come in the future. Now, Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. He is speaking here of the power of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, taking God's truth in His Word and applying it to our lives. And the Holy Spirit also tells us what's coming in the future. I can hardly sometimes tell what's going to happen in the next five minutes. Praise the Lord that we have the gift of prophecy. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can properly understand it. But even with all of this, the Holy Spirit is not done. There is a seventh thing that the Holy Spirit wishes to do. And if we give him enough time, he will do so. Uh, I want to show you a text here. This is in the book of Acts. Uh, The scene is this. Uh, The disciples, Peter and John, have gone to the temple to pray. Uh, They met a lame man on the way. Perhaps you've heard the song. They heal this man that's been lame and lame for quite some time. The Sanhedrin, the rulers get wind of this. They're not happy. They don't like it at all. Jesus seems to be coming back from the grave in their minds. They call Peter and John to stand before them. And this is what happens. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you have crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is, Jesus is, the stone the builders rejected, which has become the capstone, Psalm 118. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. Now get this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, this is the Sanhedrin, and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. A seventh thing that the Holy Spirit will do for us if we are willing is that He will utterly transform us into courageous, faithful, powerful, and yes, passionate followers of Jesus Christ. This is His goal. He is not content to leave you half-baked. He wants to bring you to maturity in Christ. And I hope by now the question is practically burning its way through your skull. If this is what Jesus can do for us through the ministry of His Holy Spirit, how are we to be filled Luke chapter 11, please, verse 11. Final text for you this morning. Luke chapter 11, verse 11. Page 845 in your pew Bible. 845, Luke chapter 11, verse 11. Jesus here is speaking with his disciples. There's also a large crowd around him, some of them friendly, some of them not. And Jesus has this to say. Chapter 11 of Luke, verse 11. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? 
Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who, what's that word? Who ask Him. If you want to receive the filling of the Holy Spirit, we must ask for it. And here, in my experience, is where so many Christians make a fatal mistake. I know I have made it in my spiritual life before. Maybe you have too. The mistake is this. We figure that because the first part of the Holy Spirit's work was automatic, which it was, you understand what I mean by that? The the, the first part of the Holy Spirit's work. Some of you may recall the time when, when you were far from God, but there was a sense in you that you wanted something better. You didn't know what it was. You couldn't really put a name on it. Oh, you know, this doesn't feel right. Maybe you were not as far away from God, but you were doing something that you knew was not right, and you felt this convicting. Oh, you know, it's got be, to be a better way to live life than this. That's the Holy Spirit, and you didn't ask for it. The Holy Spirit, in some fashion, strives with every person on the planet. No one asked for that. That's just the way God has arranged things. At this time, that's still happening. And we sometimes figure that because the first part of the Holy Spirit's work was automatic, that therefore all of the Holy Spirit's work is automatic, including being filled, but this is not so. Because you see, God is a gentleman. He will not come in where he is not wanted. And our asking for him to come in gives him permission to do so. And furthermore, notice this carefully, we ask for that which we think we need. We do not ask for that which we think we do not need. And if we ask for this blessing, it gives God permission to do in us what he wishes to do. So we must ask for this filling, and notice again carefully, we must keep asking for it, Regularly, because when it comes to the filling of the Holy Spirit, we leak. We are leaky vessels. Whether it's because there's a, you know, a new round of spiritual growth or of overcoming sin, etc., etc., we do not automatically retain the filling of the Spirit of God. So we need to ask regularly for a top-up. We regularly need to ask for that filling on a daily basis. And some of you might be thinking, why couldn't it just be fill it and forget it? I mean, why, why not just, you know, flip a switch and boom, I'm done. I'm filled with the Spirit. All this stuff is finished. We march into the kingdom. Que sera, sera. All of I mean, why not? As it turns out, the fact that we need to regularly ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit is actually a great compliment to us, paid to us by God Himself. Because the daily need for a daily filling of the Spirit of God, the need to ask for us, tells us clearly that God is not looking for robots. God is powerful enough. If, If He wanted to, He could force every person to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He could do that. But He respects us too much to do that. God is not looking for robots. He's looking for friends. He is looking for partners. He is looking for willing, intelligent co-workers for His kingdom, co-workers who freely choose each day to grow in Him. And when we give Him permission, oh, He longs to be there. And by asking regularly for the filling of His Holy Spirit, there is a meeting of the minds, our feeble mind with His almighty and perfect mind. 
And this meeting shows, us, shows him that he has full permission to work inside of us and through us. And when that happens, great, great things can come to pass in and through our lives. Now, ladies and gentlemen, how many of us are seeking to coast on a blessing we received from the Holy Spirit 10 years ago? We leak. There may be nothing left from that blessing of the Holy Spirit that you received in the past. We need a fresh filling. There is no salvation without the Holy Spirit. But with the Holy Spirit, anyone can be saved. Without the Spirit, life can seem impossible. But with the Spirit, all things are possible. In the Spirit, that's where the joy of Christianity is. That's where victory over sins that have so long held us back is. The triumph over Satan's attacks that we've longed for for so long. The Spirit is the secret to the powerful, passionate Christian life. And being filled with the Holy Spirit is fellowship with Jesus Christ every day. And listen closely here. Consequently, it is the only possible preparations for one of the greatest events the world will ever see this side of the second coming of Christ. For you see, there is still something more that the Spirit wants to do. The Spirit is not content merely to do the seven things that we talked about, to bring victory over sin or teach us all things or remind us of Christ's words, etc., etc. No, there is still something more that the Spirit longs to do in and through each one of us. And here it is. What the Holy Spirit longs to do in and with and through each of us is what I'm going to tell you about in part two next week. So you need to be here. I can guarantee for almost all of you, you will not regret it. But until then, please remember this. Information about Christ, studying the Bible, learning its words, is all indispensable. We must learn about it and share them, etc. But without the Spirit of God filling us, it'll just be words on a page. It's high time that we be filled with the wind that works, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And if we are willing to let that holy hurricane come in on a daily, regular basis, to ask for that filling each day, that holy hurricane of the Holy Spirit will build up in us a life so strong that no matter what comes our way today and in the very end of time, we will stand. Loving, powerful, passionate witnesses for Jesus Christ. May each one of us be filled with the Holy Spirit of God.